You're listening to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. And now we're going to be talking about raising teenagers and all of the challenges and also the joys that can be part of that. Darby Fox is a child and adolescent family therapist in private practice in Connecticut and New York with over 20 years of experience, including real-life experience as the parent of several teens. Her book is called Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting from Control and Conflict to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults. The book is published by Oxford University Press. Darby Fox, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you joining us. Um, I should say at the outset, and listeners to my program are well aware of the fact by now, that I am not a parent. <laughs> that being <laughs> said, I really found your book really fascinating. And uh, and I, I think a lot of people will find it interesting to read, even if they themselves are not parents. Uh, although obviously the book is very much designed with, with parents in mind. Uh, I am assuming that you yourself are a parent, but correct me if I'm wrong. And could you just say a word about uh, if indeed you are a parent, uh, how much your real life, real world experience folds into the conclusions that you have drawn uh, in your book, Rethinking Your Teenager? I am a parent. I have four kids, young adults at this stage, uh, two boys and two girls. And I think that that definitely informed why I wrote the book. And I think the most important piece there was in having two boys, two girls, um, everybody's different. And that kind of reinforced you had to raise each one a little differently. It wasn't just a cookie cutter approach. So you've seen that uh, firsthand and yeah. come to the, the need to rethink your teenagers. You've had four of them at various points in time and, and each one presented uh, their own particular challenge uh, to exactly. you. Exactly. And they... They needed to be, you know, to make a connection, it, it was always different and, and continues to be different. Like what really is the piece that um, will, where they can hear you and where you can be most effective. And that, it, that's, the, that's the struggle or the hard part, but also the reward. Right. Uh, I actually want to start with something that comes towards the very end of the book when you quote a psychologist, uh, John uh, Bowlby or Bowlby, yeah. who says, parenting will not work if the parent does not derive joy from the endeavor. Uh, those words just leapt out at me because when I think about uh, parents raising adolescents, I think certainly I can think of instances when it has been by and large, a joyous experience, but so often it is not. And right. I think you certainly have probably talked to plenty of parents over the years in which that is the last word they would use to describe the experience of parenting teenagers. Um, but obviously you you must agree with, uh, with uh, Mr. Balby when it comes to this. And I wonder if we could just start with that, with the importance of joy in parenting of all kinds and particularly parenting teenagers for as difficult as it might be. When you look back at your own experience as a parent of teenagers, uh, how, how often were you able to find joy in the endeavor? Um, that's a great question. And I can say that most of it was 
was joyful. Um, I, I didn't have huge, uh, of course they did things that were not smart or pushed the limits, but it was never um, a breaking moment. And I think the important thing was to realize, you know, with my background, I probably had more knowledge about where their brain was or how we may need to change things differently. But adolescents in particular are really the most engaging and fun age group because they can understand, they can embrace new information and change, and they really do want to please you and they want to be independent. So if we can make that connection early on, it's hard if you have a controversial relationship and you're dealing with a 16-year-old that you've never gotten along with. But if you can build from the beginning so that you have a foundation as a relationship, then it's actually a really rewarding time. I'm thinking that uh, as somebody who's been a child and adolescent family therapist for many, many years, that most of the time people come to you when things are terrible and they desperately need help. And I'm guessing, but correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the reasons you probably wanted to write this book is because this, in effect, is is not maybe necessarily about trying to repair something that's right. in terrible shape, but this is about laying the groundwork so that a given family, given parents or, or a parent uh, can do this better right from the start. And in a sense, uh, put you out of a job because uh, things hopefully will not get to that point where things are so terribly difficult and painful. Is there any truth to that? Uh, absolutely. And, and frequently that's where people do bring me their child, their adolescent, and they're like, they're just awful, or this is so bad. What, what I like to do is I don't like to start there. I like to start with learning about what are you good at? Tell me what you do well. And that always sort of takes parents and um, kids of any age off guard, like, oh, wait a sec. Because what we want to do is break down, and that's in the title of the book, Shifting from Control to Structure and Nurture, is if we can break down that initial wall, the, the adolescent comes in ready for you to say that they're a jerk or what they do is stupid. Or if you can break that down and just sort of relax and open them up first, then you, you have the ability to move forward. And so I think that that is what I would love to teach parents is back up a little bit and try and connect. Remember what it was like for you or how you would have wanted someone to listen to you or help you, even when you knew you made a mistake. And I think that that's really the most important part of um, the book is, okay, let's take a step back and with knowledge of where they are psychologically and biologically, let's see how we can do a better job of moving forward without belittling. We're speaking with Darby Fox about her book, Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting Com from Control and Conflict to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults. You say very early in the book, I believe that many of the difficulties, meaning difficulties parents have with raising adolescents, stem from misunderstanding. What is the central misunderstanding that you think is at the heart of so much of the parenting difficulties that we have either experienced ourselves or hear so much about? 
I think the central um, misunderstanding is most often adolescents say, my parents don't get me. They don't understand me. And really what that kind of means is they don't connect with me. Like they assume that I am proceeding with malintent and no awareness of others, which by and large is not really how I've ever found any adolescent or people, quite frankly, to be. Usually they're, yes, there are missteps, but it's not about trying to harm or um, just totally disregard someone else. So I think that that's, I think that's a really important thing is to be for parents to stop and say, wait a sec, what is it that's happening here? as opposed to um, picking up on the negative outcome. I thought one of the really intriguing points you made that resonated with me, even someone who's not ever been a parent at all, but, uh, but I could really kind of sense the truth of this is when you write, as a culture, we believe that teens are out of control. So we feel that our job as parents is to control them. We attempt to tighten our grip over our child at the precise moment that they are pushing us to loosen it. <laughs> you really spell that out really well and how uh, it is exactly the wrong sort of situation that you want. I mean, the push and pull of that can of course be really, really difficult. So first of all, let's, let's talk about that assumption where that assumption comes from and is it one of those assumptions that has absolutely no basis in truth or uh i mean is, is it understandable for parents uh to make that assumption even if it's a misassumption mis or a misunderstanding of how most teenagers are it is a fair assumption because there is often that you know rules are broken or um you know, things happen where someone drank too much or there was a problem. So there's frequently a reason to kind of think that. But what I encourage parents to think about is this relationship with your adolescent, with your children, especially as they age, is not different than any other relationship. And so if you approach a relationship by coming right down on someone and telling them exactly what they have to do, when and how, by and large, you'll get a great deal of resistance. Even if you're right, they will resist. And so I, what I encourage parents to do is think about, okay, how can I guide them with more of sort of an open net, be there, but let them know sort of what the parameters are, but then where, what happens, what's the consequence if they don't if they go astray. And that way, what we really want to do is make sure that the adolescent understands they have a choice by and large, most often, and it's a consequence they're choosing their behavior. That way they can be accountable for it. And as parents, our job then is not to just let them do whatever they want, but for example, they miss curfew then this simple next thing is I, you chose not to come home on time. So now you're not going to be able to go out and I'm going to need you to do some things for me. Whatever that is, is they chose that behavior. That's really important. You still are maintaining structure 
because you've got your rules in place, but you're not coming down on top of them. You're allowing them a little room to decide where they want to be. And that's how you build confidence and accountability. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. That reminds me of a, a, another excellent point that I think you make uh, when you say that too many parents never adjust their earlier parenting strategies. I mean, right. that you, 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 it is a, uh, it is a <laughs> almost certainly going to be a terrible mistake if you parent your 15 year old the way you parented them when they were five. And while I'm sure that probably doesn't literally happen in, in every respect, I'm sure there are all kinds of instances in which a parent really grows accustomed to that earlier way of parenting. And it might even be uh, a way of parenting that kind of gives them a charge. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they are, in many cases, loath to, to shift that, that strategy of parenting, particularly when it means letting go of control and so on. Uh, how often do you see that? And typically, how does that play out? Uh, I, I see that really frequently. And I think that for parents, in fairness to parents, it is very natural human nature that if you're sort of afraid of something, and we've all been through adolescence, so we kind of know what it's like and where things maybe go wrong and sort of what's kind of the hidden secrets that are happening socially. So I think our thing is to control, try to control the teenager. Like, I'm not going to let that happen because I know about it. Again, that's where you're going to get that resistance and the blockout. And that's what makes the struggle that you, we often hear about. So parents need to adjust that. And kids, especially adolescents, want to be acknowledged for getting older and understanding things. So what I would suggest there is say, okay, what do you think is fair punishment if you can't do this? Or what do you think I should do if you can't, you know, get yourself out of bed and you make the entire carpool late? What should I do? I want the parents to put that back on the child so they then have to call the school and say, look, I was late. Or they have to talk to the one who's running the carpool. If they have to be accountable and your parent that we're not, you know, just yelling at them or controlling them, then there's a whole shift of behavior. That shift is really important. I mean, uh, not just the shift of what happens with the child's behavior, but a shift for the parents right. away from control and towards connection. Let's talk about that shift and how it can be accomplished. But even ahead of talking about the how, uh, are you wanting parents to actually release altogether that notion of control? I mean, is that in your mind kind of a dirty word that is best expunged from the vocabulary of the parent of a teenager? Or I mean, is, is a little bit of control or okay? Or is it just better if parents just stop thinking in those terms altogether? So, so that's a great question. I, I think if you define control as structure, then I could say you could let go to, of the control. I want to make it super clear. I really believe we have to have rules and boundaries, um, family values. So it, it isn't just a free for all. I'm not suggesting in any way, oh, just let your kids do what they want. Anything but that. But what I am saying is have a really strong follow through. Like if, if, 
no drinking is one of your rules and your child comes home at 14 or 15 and they're, you know, inebriated, actually address that piece and make a connection to what they've done wrong there. That is where we get a change in behavior as opposed to just saying, okay, you'll never go out again. I'm going to ground you for two weeks. And then again, you can't really ground them because they've probably got some obligations and then you just let it all go. And so then they, they learn to not really listen to you because you have empty threats. So that's, that is more what I'm suggesting. Um, and I think for parents, we don't have to struggle. If someone breaks a rule, it's just the way it is, right? Like if you get a speeding ticket because you went too fast, there's a price you have to pay. Doesn't mean we withdraw love or support or stop trusting you. We just have you pay the speeding ticket and, you know, possibly not be able to drive for a couple of days, something like that. So I want to make that really clear. It isn't it's it's not about not having any control or structure. It's about not thinking you can control their behavior by your wishes. Mm. Uh, if we're then thinking about control uh, in a different way, uh, and I think what you're suggesting makes all kinds of, of sense, let's talk about that other C word, which you think needs to be uh, a, a much more prominent component of parenting adolescence that is of establishing connection. Uh, first of all, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the word connection or connect? And how would you have the parent of an adolescent go about doing that, establishing stronger connection or in some cases connection any connection at all because obviously a lot of parents of of, of teenagers will will tell you that uh that they feel and their adolescent seems to feel no connection whatsoever how would you have us go about creating that connection or fostering it so with that i would like to ask parents to be a little more reflective about what it was like for them when they were adolescents and kind of what were they wishing Frequently, a lot of parents, and, and not, again, with any malintent, but they sort of decide the path an adolescent is going to take. Like they must do this music lesson or they must do these sports. And they don't ever allow for the adolescent to have their own agenda in there. So then there's this automatic disconnect of the adolescent saying they don't understand me. So what I, what I would like to ask parents to do is you know, set your parameters. I'm not suggesting again that adolescents should have no, you know, extracurriculars and just let to do whatever they want, play Xbox all day. But if you really want an athlete, but your child's really interested in design and architecture, that's where you have to kind of pull back a little. Doesn't mean you can't require them to exercise, but engage in what their interest is find ways for them to develop passions. And that's the piece, ask them about what they do. Typically adolescents know way more about anything in technology or social media. Ask them, be a little vulnerable. And instead of kind of coming from the top down, if you can kind of engage at a more equal level, again, not giving up rules or consequences, but if you can kind of talk to them as if they're people, then you can build a connection. And then you're willing to work together. 
as you're describing that, it occurs to me that uh, there are some parents who go about trying to do that and who, in some cases, I think, actually pursue the possibility of being their adolescent's friend yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of or more than being their parent. And probably the way I'm characterizing that maybe betrays my own uh, hesitation about that. That is, I feel like I've seen that play out in ways that are sort of unfortunate, where uh, a, 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 an adolescent, whatever they might think they need, they need a parent. They don't need another friend. Uh, so is, is it possible for that sense of connection to be pursued in a way that might be ultimately counterproductive? Uh, or, or by and large, do you, do you not see that too much? No, actually, we see that a lot. So a lot of parents, you know, feel like that connection means being their best friend. Like they'll tell me everything. And then what gets confusing there is then you also feel this um, overarching sense to be really permissive. And that's where we get the struggle with um, the inappropriate boundaries. You know, I know several people, the mother's buying alcohol for the 15 year old and she's afraid that her daughter won't like her if she doesn't do it. That's a very common scenario. What I really want parents to encourage, you know, to encourage parents to think about is, you know, it's still illegal. It's illegal for many years. You're, you're putting a drug on, of any sort on a developing brain. Go ahead and tell your child, you know what? I love you to death, but I'm not going to buy you alcohol. Like that, that builds respect, which, you know what? Again, an adolescent's not going to listen to someone they don't respect. So we want to make that a clear distinction. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Darby Fox, and we're talking about her really fascinating book called Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting from Control and Conflict to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults. Before we go any further, I wonder if you could just say a word about that matter of accountability, which you do talk about in your book, and I think you make some really good points about this. First of all, what do you mean when you describe someone as an accountable young adult? And, uh, and how do we sometimes misunderstand what real accountability is all about? I think accountability sometimes, especially as, as kids get go through adolescence and then into college, and somehow we think we, we often praise um, accolades as the, oh, they're accountable. Look at what they did. They got this award or their GPA is such. But really what accountable is, is can you own your own behavior? And can you, even when you make a mistake or you've hurt someone else, can you own that and then make a change? So the good and the bad. And frequently we don't see that. We are in a culture frequently where um, we will have parents, you don't do well on a test and the parent will call the teacher and say, you know, how could you have done this? This wasn't the right question. Or how could you not put my child on the team? How could you cut them? Those kind of things really don't help our kids. Even when it's a mistake, we want them to know actually the world's not fair basic premise. And if you start with that, it's not fair, but how do you show up that you can control? It's really important. So that word control comes up in teach your children that they can control how they respond to things. 
but they can't control what comes in. Really important because if you feel you can control some piece of something and that's your response and your attitude, then you feel like, okay, I can do this. Even when I make a mistake, I can say, hey, I made a mistake. I'll do better. Really significant. Hmm. Yeah, I like how you say at one point that we often get the matter of accountability backwards and that then developing a sense of being accountable to themselves and for themselves is so much more important than being accountable to somebody else. Although that other kind of accountability matters in life, uh, but it's not the whole picture and it tends to be what we emphasize to the detriment of the other. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's really important. And then we can also, as our adolescents can be more um, learn to be happier with less or know, okay, you know what? I maybe didn't get everything I wanted, but I am kind of proud that I did this. Or, you know what? I don't really like that guy, but I can respect him. So that's where we want to build the gray area as we're thinking of building adolescence, not just these high, like really visible marks, like high test scores or um, you know, a certain reward in athletics, those things, there's a whole range in between that are really where we live as adults. And we want to make sure we're building those for kids. The bulk of your fascinating book is built around a, a matrix of what you describe as eight myths or eight areas most misunderstood between parents and their and their teenagers uh, these are assumptions that that a lot of people make and uh, and as I read through this list of eights and, and read what you had to say about them I, I thought yes this is this plays <laughs> out all the time right uh, there's probably no better thing for us to do than to give you a chance to just talk us through in fairly brief fashion these eight different myths. Okay. Circle back to one or two of them for a little more detail. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to, I think um, it's important because these were the things that I really hear most often. Um, the first myth is teenagers or young adults who choose to act immaturely. I think what we parents often lose sight of is physically they look like adults. Frequently they're bigger than we are. They're, um, or, you know, as, as big as we are, and, you know, they're pretty in charge of their own lives. So we think that, um, why don't they act like adults? Well, their brains are developing. So they don't have that. They're not fully developed. In fact, it's not going to be developed. And, and every year it kind of moves out a little bit until somewhere around the early to mid twenties is when the brain's fully developed. So that's where we do need to guide them and be a little more understanding, knowing that they aren't wired there. Um, the second myth is about teenagers behave badly um, because of raging hormones and they're just out of control and there's nothing we can do because all of a sudden they've just got all these hormones in their body. Uh, that's not really the way it works. Um, Yes, there are more of the sexual hormones and, and they start developing and coming, they're much stronger than they were when they were younger. But really what we wanna remember is those are gonna be there for the next several years, 30, 40 years. And you know, they kind of peak and then they taper again. 
So we don't want to let them off the hook for that. We want to say, okay, you know what? You got to learn to manage yourself, even on a day when, you know, you might be having your menstrual cycle or you can't be violent because there's more, you're more aggressive. You know, we don't want to give that buy to a boy that's an adolescent and say, oh, well, there's too much testosterone. That's not okay. Behavior needs to be separate from the biochemical piece of our bodies. So I think that's really important. Um, again, this is one of my favorites. Adolescents shut out adults and listen only to peers. Um, we hear that all the time. Actually, uh, what I love working with about adolescents is they are always looking for kind of a mentor, for someone to believe in them, to someone to kind of guide them. They are pretty clear. They don't really know. So the more you can embrace that, they will look for those people. And frequently it's coaches or mentors, some kind of an adult that does give them a little more break, sees them differently than their parent. And I think that's a really important one. Um, this one's kind of easy. Adolescents, you know, parents are frequently like, you're so lazy. Don't, why do you stay up so late at night and you can't get out of bed in the morning? So melatonin is released in any, any adolescent about two hours later than it would be for you or I. So that hormone that says it's time to kind of unwind and go to sleep is being released. So if we're getting it at nine, our 16-year-old's getting it at 11. And then they throw in a couple screens with blue light that kind of suppress the melatonin. And that's where they're wired and they're staying up later. So that's actually a very real biological thing. Um, the multitaskers, we always think about this. And I, and I will say kind of throw women under the bus here too, because I always pride myself on being a great multitasker, you know, possibly better than men. But our brain's not meant to multitask. Our brain is, it, it can, it's actually an amazing machine, if you will. So it can multitask, but it's not meant to. It works much more efficiently on one task at a time. So we really do want to keep our kids from being on the phone and the computer, writing a paper, listening to music, driving the car, all those things really fray the brain. And that's where we see a lot of sort of mental illness kind of developing and ADHD because people are kind of fried from trying to do this multitasking. Um, drugs and alcohol only temporarily impact the teenager. I come down pretty hard right here. Um, lots of parents say everybody's doing it, so I have to allow it. Um, no, you don't. And everybody's not doing it. And what you're doing is my, my big question, my big piece on this is, you know, women aren't doing drugs or drinking a lot when they're pregnant. That's the only other time the brain is developing at the same rate in utero as it is when you're an adolescent. And we do see some very serious impact when the brain is developing and a cell is not fully formed, any alcohol or drug alters the shape of it. And that's just science. So I think that's, I really take a hard stance there. And then the risky, stupid behavior, they're just trying to irritate me. Um, sometimes that may be true, but what's really important to keep in mind as a parent is that the neurotransmitters that are excitatory, that help develop the brain and move it forward with all the novelty seeking and the ability to actually become an adult, 
is much greater in the brain than the inhibitory, like a GABA neurotransmitter. So that means they really aren't getting that kind of stop. They're kind of jumping right over it. So your adolescent is going to be jumping to gratification way before they even consider risk. If we know that in advance, we don't have to worry about saying, oh, you're so stupid, you didn't think of that, because they actually didn't, they jumped the hoop. So what do we do about that? We really do have boundaries, structure, and we preview what could happen. Really important. So that was a quick, um, we have one more myth, but um, let's see, I can't even remember it. It's uh, mental health. Oh, so how could I forget that? Everything ties into this mental health piece. And I think that's what's really important there is, again, it isn't just a resistant teenager. No one wants to be like have ill health or feel depressed. I really would love for parents to be engaged in noticing the differences and, you know, withdrawal from friends, withdrawal from food or overeating, can't get out of bed. It's very hard to be an adolescent, especially during the age of technology. And I think that as parents, we could do a better job. We could promote better mental health if we really work on building a core foundation that is completely like aside, separate from any of the piece of social media. And don't use that as an excuse. As you were parenting your own adolescence. Uh, I'm just curious if any of these myths played a role in how you parented and then what I'm sure were at least occasional difficulties that you yourself had. I'm just curious to just turn it into the first person for a moment uh, right, right. And, and see if any of these resonate especially well with you. I think the one that did resonate especially well a lot of them do, but the one that definitely um, resonated well with me is the one about the risky behavior and assuming, you know, that right away they were just trying to be jerks and ignore you. Um, all kinds of things happened pretty much with each child. Maybe one had less than the others, but by and large, there was always something that they really hadn't thought through to the end. And the challenge in that was to kind of pull back, not just shriek or yell at them in the moment and say, okay, that wasn't great. Now, did you think about this and where can we go from here? And again, with that, it wasn't a yelling, screaming match. It was, okay, you know what? That can't happen. Look at how it could have gone. And then actually making them be accountable. So if it was something where they damaged someone else's property inadvertently, there was a party at a house they shouldn't have been, make sure your child's there to clean up. Make sure they apologize to the parents. Um, make them, again, own that behavior. And I really did hold my kids to that. Um, you know, if they let someone down, I was like, okay, you got to contact them and, and talk to them about it. Um, the piece with mental health, I have a daughter who's a real introvert and she loved to, by Friday, she really didn't want to be at the social events. She needed some downtime. I was always very worried that there was something wrong and, um, you know, that she needed more engagement, more wanted to be at the party. And, um, she's delightful, 
has so many friends and, but she just didn't love the kind of back and forth catty mean girl stuff. So she would withdraw. That was hard. I sometimes wanted to push her because that would seem better, right? Like I knew better than she did. And I really had to learn to pull myself back and let her tell me what she needed or where she was. Um, Sleep is always a thing. Um, You know, a lot of parents try to stay up with their kids. That's hard. Um, But I would have a regular schedule for them. I I think mentors was the biggest, most important thing that I, my kids, I was divorced for the bulk of raising my children. And I did ask other people for a little bit of guidance or help. Um, My youngest son has no idea that I went to the head of his school and said, look, I I really want him to do more community service. But if I say it, he'll kind of put it down. He really respects you. He admires you. Could you have a conversation with him? He's like, oh, I think that's fantastic. Next day, the kid comes home and he's like, mom, guess what? The head of school thinks I would be great at more of this. So things like that, or, you know, they learn that coaches really can understand when they didn't play well or what happened. I think that's super important. Just that sense that I have a community for adolescents. And I did learn that because I needed it. I was a single parent of four kids um, in six years going all directions. And I, and I did embrace other people. Hmm. A last question you mentioned at one point, and I think this is so important to acknowledge parenting adolescents can be thankless (laughs) in particular, because, uh, you go on to say they want reassurance and support without wanting to admit that they need, uh, reassurance and support. That really is, a tough place for parents to be in. Um, any final word of encouragement when it comes to this matter of the thanklessness of parenting an adolescent? So, so what I want to remind people that, and and really again from firsthand experience, encourage. You don't need to look for a thank you in the moment. You don't need to look for that, like them actually saying it right then and there. Again, that's different than manners and respect. We want them to be polite and have manners and respect. But again, those hard decisions you make, you don't have to have a conversation. You're like, you know what? I'm not allowing you to go to that party. Love you to death and withdraw. That seems thankless. I guarantee you, as they get older and they see where other things derailed, they know, and they will thank you for that. So I really want to encourage parents to hold that ground of what their foundation is and not look for the approval necessarily. That that makes it more rewarding. The book again is Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting from Control and Conflict to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults, published by Oxford University Press and the author Darby Fox. Darby Fox, I congratulate you on writing such a fine book about a really tough and complex topic. Thank you so much. And thank you for being part of the morning show today. Greg, thank you so much for having me.